Well, now comes that time before we start this episode of ARR Raw, where we thank the people who have supported with the $50 or more support. And it's just great. I mean, we really appreciate everybody who supports. It really doesn't matter what you can give. Not everybody can give um, a large amount, and but any amount helps make this show better. And the, the more support we get from you listeners, the less time we have to worry about trying to chase down advertisers to finance the whole thing. And that goes for the for Adventure Rider Radio and, of course, Raw as well. So I want to start. I've got four for this month um, that have donated over $50. And if you want to do this, all you have to do is drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button. There's a bunch of different things that we offer there. And we, we send stickers as incentives and a bunch of different things. But we also have Patreon where you can sign up for monthly donations. And that's really what I would love to see go up because if that gets up to enough, then we just don't have to worry about anything. We, we can worry about keeping you, the listener, happy. And that's really what we're after. So I want to thank you very much. And again, we thank everybody. We really do really appreciate everyone's support but these people have really went above and beyond the call of duty for this month Robert Stransky um, thank you very much Philip Winter thank you very much Dave Priggle thank you very much and, and I hope that KLR is treating you well and David Donnelly thank you very much and that's great and that's the uh, the $50 or more donations for this month Thank you very much, everyone. As I said, it doesn't matter what uh, support that you've given us. If you have, I appreciate it. Elizabeth appreciates it and uh, and your help making the thing keep going. So without any further ado, as they say, here is ARR Raw for September 2017. Okay, so remember everybody, stay in close to your mics um, and uh, and watch the noise, of course. And here we go. From the Canoe West Media Studios on the shores of Vancouver Island, back on Vancouver Island, um, British Columbia, Canada, it is September 2017, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name's Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by our regular Overland co-hosts, and I'm going to start at the top of the list and the bottom of the world, Shirley Hardy Ricks. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I'm trying to sound really bright and cheery. No, you do. <laughs> you have us fooled. No, just keep going with that. <laughs> Run with that. Oh, okay. And yeah, beside no, you, in the same room, again, at the bottom of the world, Brian Ricks. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, everybody. Uh, a bit bleary-eyed, but we're here and we're ready to go. And, and you'd know that there, there are people who believe Australia is the top of the world, and you can actually get maps where we are the top of the world, and you folk are the bottom. <laughs> That's funny. You know that's a joke, right? <laughs> no, it's no, not a joke. It's true. true. Well, well, think about it. North is where we are, and south is where you are, and everyone knows north is top. Uh, but the uh, the ancients in Ecuador, they tell us that uh, that uh, we are the top of the world. So yeah, I think they go. told us that because they wanted money. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm going to skip back up to the top of the world. Grant Johnson, <laughs> I, I don't even know where you are. Grant, where are you? <laughs> I'm in Bakersfield, California at the moment. What are you doing in we're Bakersfield? Organized. We're going to the California Travelers Meeting, which is coming up in the next 10 days. Ah, what's the date for that? September 21 to 24. We'll actually be there for the first time in a few years. Oh, wow. That's a big one, isn't it? That's one of our biggest ones, yes. It's uh, second. Ken West and California both have a, an annual contest to see who gets the most people. It's great fun. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> so we'll for, see. For the listener, we were recording this like a, what is it, a week before, not even, something like that. Well, skipping across the pond from our perspective anyway, Sam Manicom, good evening, Sam. Top of the evening to you and everybody else. Hi. And you, you're not in the UK for very long because I know you're headed for the States soon. When are you coming over? I am. Um, I'm here for another four days, so I leave home on the 16th. And um, yeah, really looking forward to being back in the States. Um, east side this time, um, but more on that later, hey. And Graham Field is away. He's not making this episode. He couldn't manage to stay awake is what happened with Graham. He said he full, woke up this morning full of ideas and uh, drifted off. Oh, well. So we miss you, Graham. Hopefully you're going to listen to this. And I think we should all say hi to Graham. Hi, Graham. Yeah. Hi, Graham. Graham. We miss See you. See you next time. Too right. Yeah. Yeah, come on, Graham. And then a nap in the afternoon, you old man. <laughs> and we did just spend, what, like 15 minutes discussing times, and we were all looking at our times trying to figure out a way to swap things around and make everyone happy. But as of yet, we haven't really come up with a solution. You could all move to Australia. Yeah, we did talk about that before, and I, I do think that's a good idea. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking more you guys move here. Oh. No, no. I mean, no. <laughs> hey, Jim, did you notice they did actually have a pause to think about that? Yeah, it was, a very brief it was one, one they did. It was one of those dramatic pauses. It wasn't actually a real pause. <laughs> No, I just had this little image of <laughs> two looking at each other, horrified. Move to Canada. No, stay in Australia. <laughs> hey, here's a quote for you. Dreams are where adventures begin. Who says that? Sam does. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's where we're going to start today because, um, and, and this was Sam's suggestion, is, is that's one of his favorite sayings um, because it's so true. But um, what Sam suggested is, why do you think that you guys have actually managed to do the, your big trip when statistically um, most of them, most people dream about it and they don't end up having it happen? Um, they don't end up following through. I mean, there's a lot of people who say they would love to take a trip. And, and I, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe people aren't that serious when they say it. You know, maybe it's the thing, oh, I'd love to have a car like that. But it certainly does happen a lot. I mean, there are certainly people who would, would really like to do a big trip. And, and they just don't manage to pull it together. Sam, you should probably kick this off. Well, you know, for me, it's, um, it's an itch thing combined with an awareness of the possibilities. Uh, will Wilkins, who I think many um, listeners will know about, he's um, an overlander. Um, will and his wife, Kate, traveled from Australia to uh, the UK. Will was riding a, little, uh, a DR650 and Kate was on her XT250. And they rode 21,000 um, kilometers over 22 country ride and um, they have a, a brilliant top tip section in the back of their book and Will and I were talking about tips and questions and things like this and this is one of the questions that we started to talk about and it, it's, it's um, f for me it's, it's all to do with being aware of what the possibilities are, the things that are able to be achieved because that takes away from a certain amount of the fear factor of the unknown. Now, I think the fear factor of, and, and the whole unknown thing is actually really healthy because I think it turns 
everything in the world into sharp edge clarity instead of just being um, a sort of foggy haze of every today, every day, make it from one day to the next. I don't know if that makes sense. But I mean, for me, it, I, I'm lucky in that I've been traveling since a very early age. And so we're, I already know what a fantastic, amazing, challenging world we we live in. And I'm, I'm just full of curiosity. And I think it's the curiosity um, that is the most powerful draw for me. It takes me over um, some of the barriers. And I, I, I guess it's also to do with the fact that I know things are going to go wrong when I'm on a trip, but I'm not afraid of things going wrong because I do know that they are just the beginnings of unexpected adventures. And Graham Field's book, uh, Eureka, is a perfect example of that, isn't it? You know, here he is setting off on this big mega trip that he's been dreaming so hard about, and he's ticking boxes on the trip, but things just keep going wrong in front of him. And he gets to the stage where he's feeling pretty despondent, and then all of a sudden he looks around and he sees that it may be going wrong, but where, what am I now? Um, what a fantastic place I'm in. And he knows as an experienced traveler how to take advantage of those instant observations. Um, I, I think that a lot of people put really strong goals in their minds when they're planning to do a trip. And sometimes those goals become unachievable, whereas the things leading up to those goals, many of those could be achievable. And so surely it's a case of the things that happen along the way that are the important things rather than getting to the end of the of the proposed trip and ticking the box. Um, and I guess for me also it's a case of being able to get myself free enough of responsibilities to be able to hit the road and not to be constantly worrying about what's going on at home. And that freedom even to roll the wheels in the first place is, is um, yeah, I mean, that's that's so important, isn't it? And I, I mean, people have debt and family responsibilities and all of so, those sorts of things. And sometimes they can be a huge weight for people and they're planning like mad, but those things are still hanging um, I, I remember telling you um, one time before about um, a lass that I met who was uh, living in London and she was in a pretty high-powered job and earning quite a good wage. But of course, living in London is um, a significantly expensive thing to do accommodation alone, but um, everything else that's involved. And she said to me, you know, how on earth do you manage to afford to go off and do something like this? And I said, well, you save like mad. You just stop spending money. That's one of the key things. And she said, yeah, but I can't. And I said, well, how many coffees do you buy a day? And it turned out that she was buying roughly one bought coffee an hour. How many bottles of wine do you drink a day, et cetera, et cetera. And um, she actually cut out all of those things. And then about a year later, I had a phone call from her saying, um, and a text saying, I'm off. Um, so those sorts of things are achievable. The money often is a big barrier for people, but it's also, I think, a case of being able to get rid of the responsibilities. But of course, we all have to accept that not everybody can go. It doesn't matter how hard you dream because people do have responsibilities. And I mean, my own personal feeling on that is what sort of world would we live in if people didn't take their responsibilities seriously? But it is a case of seeing how far those responsibilities actually need to run and whether there's an alternative way of dealing with them um, because they can be a complete uh, trip breaker. 
And there's some people in, in some countries, of course, that wouldn't have the finances ever. They have no yep. chance at, at yep, doing absolutely. something like that. I mean, I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing happening in India, for example. Um, there's such a buzz of enthusiasm for overlanding in India now. And I know that Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw are getting quite a lot of listeners in India. Um, and just seeing what's happening there grow and how many people are going out and living their dreams on their, their small um, CC bikes because that's what they can afford. And they're not letting the fact that they can't afford a bigger bike or anything else like that stop them. They're just saying, this is what I've got. This, this is my dream. Let's make it happen. And, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely fabulous. You know, sometimes the making it happen um, can go down to something as simple as having uh, the right mindset and money and things. As you, as you pointed out, Sam, that girl only had to give up coffee and wine. My goodness. Gee, she was pretty brave. <laughs> um, and then she was able to manage an overseas trip. But our first uh, trip, we met um, the um, the Rattays, Chris and Erin Rattay in Australia through Horizons. And I'm sure Brian's told you this story before. And we got the best bit of advice from Chris. And he said, just tell people you're going. And then um, it gets too embarrassing to back out. <laughs> yeah. So that gives you the mindset that you've got to go now because you've told everyone you're going and you're going to look like such an utter idiot if you don't go. And yep. and the things like the money, that can happen. Um, the first trip we did, we both were professional people with jobs that we couldn't throw away. So we managed to take a grown-ups gap year. And all right, we had a year, but that was an enormous amount of time when well, in America, you get an average of, what, two weeks holiday a year when you're working? Um, UK, four or five weeks, and we took a year off knowing that we had our jobs waiting for us at home. Our house was waiting for us with a very nice house sitter sitting in it looking after everything, and uh, we just chuffed off. So you can do it. It's just a matter of maybe thinking outside the square sometimes, and an adventure doesn't have to be 12 months or two years or even six months. It can yeah, be that's something that we run into. It can a be lot. six weeks, yeah, or uh, two weeks, or. I, I, yeah, I think some, I, people, some people let things get in the way. In this day and age, where bikes are so um, mechanically um, reliable and and uh, everything works, they want everything to work all the time. And, and Sam's attitude of, well, things are going to break, things are going to go wrong, and that's part of the adventure. The number of people that inquire with me about, oh well, wh what should I do? If um, how do I get my bike serviced or where am I going to get tyres and I'm sure we've all heard that before and what happens if it breaks down well you get it fixed um, I think some people find these barriers which really are just minuscule barriers to living your dreams and the, the, they're looking the start, for excuses, Brian. They're looking for excuses. Yes, that's what they're trying to. I think I think that's right, Grant. And that also excuses. can be by accident, can't like not not done on purpose. You know, you, you tend to look oh, for yeah. excuses because I think fear. I was going to throw in fear in there. If you're not an experienced fear traveler, and I, I think a lot of you guys started traveling when you're young. But if you're not an experienced traveler, fear is huge. Yep, yeah, fear yeah. of the unknown, fear of being outside your safety zone. It's and it's. Yeah. It's understandable because if you read the media, mm. all you ever right. hear are bad things that happen in other countries. Yeah. You and don't people, hear we, the good stories. No, and, and the biggest problem is that we tend to normally underestimate the dangers of things that we're familiar with and overestimate the dangers in places we're not familiar. That That's mm -hmm. a standard statistic. Mm. Uh, 
especially like people in one country may say, oh, it's really dangerous over there. And then people in the other country say, oh, it's really dangerous in that country. You know, they both well, think that the other country is dangerous. And that happens well, all the time everywhere. Great, that's right. That's exactly right. We had it from town to town in yeah. um, in Pakistan. Wasn't it really? Pakistan? Yeah. yeah. Oh, where, where have you come from? That village? Oh, really? How did you survive? <laughs> and it's, it's not new either, is it? Have you no. guys read um, uh, no. One Man Caravan? Yeah, One Man yeah. Caravan. He talks Man about Caravan. exactly it's that. And in Pakistan Absolutely. area too. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Nothing's changed. <laughs> How long goes One Man Caravan? About 19... 20s or 30s, wasn't it? Yeah, 23. 1930s, I think. Mm. But anyway, yeah. I mean, way back then, and, it, and human beings are still being human beings. Um, what we don't know, we fear. Um, but the only way to get rid of the fear is actually to go out and look and find out for ourselves. Yeah, and I think mm. what we have to think about all the time is like we called our, our DVD series The Achievable Dream for a very strong reason. And Sam alluded to achievable several times on, on what he was talking about earlier. And I think that's what we have to focus on is what do we think that we can reasonably achieve? You can do anything that you decide you want to do. And I think that's the, the biggest thing is if you really want to do it, you will achieve it. But if you're a little unsure and you think, well, it's I don't know. I don't know about Africa. That's that sounds really scary. Don't go to Africa. Fine. Go to South America or go somewhere that you think is OK. And once you've done that, you realize, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. And you'll talk to other people and you'll meet other people that have been to other more exotic places that you thought were scary, but they thought were wonderful. And then you'll start expanding your horizons to farther and maybe somewhat more difficult areas. But it's all achievable once you make that decision that it's okay. But That's you have really to good get your comfort level. That's really good advice, um, Grant. When we did our first trip, we were initially going to leave Australia on the bike, which would have put us into Asia um, and India early on. And in the end, for numerous reasons, we went the other way and we shipped the Where bike to England and rode home. So we were on the bike in the UK and then we drifted over onto the other side of the road in Europe and other languages. And by the time we got to what is perceived and probably is some of the hardest riding through India and Nepal and places like that, Pakistan. We were well used to being on the bike and we were well used to trying to find accommodation, dealing with languages, dealing with um, money. So it wasn't so daunting. It wasn't yeah. such um, such a shock to the system because we eased ourselves into it gently, I guess is that Exactly. Way. Work your way towards it. We did the same thing when we did uh, our main around the world. We started in Europe and then we worked to went to Tunisia from Europe. And Tunisia is Arabia for beginners. It's it's dead easy. There's nothing hard about Tunisia at all. Um, and then we went into Libya, which was more difficult. Then we did Egypt, which was much more difficult. And then we went to Black Africa farther south. And it got harder and harder and harder, but only incrementally. It wasn't that big a giant leap, like flying into Chad with your motorcycle, for instance, that might be a little bit of a push <laughs> if it's your first trip. <laughs> you, you know, you know? Like you, everybody laughs when you say it, but that's probably something to really be careful of in your planning stage is, is to really sure. be sure that, that, as a matter of fact, I guess if you don't have the experience, you'd probably be wise to, to definitely go through some sort of stage system. You might think that you'd be able to handle something, but you get there, it could turn you off of travel completely. So it'd probably, exactly. be, yeah, it'd probably be wise to plan a trip just like that, where you're working your way into it. Yeah, yeah, Sam keeping terribly quiet here. 
<laughs> I think he is. So, so why would that be, Sam? Why do you think well, that would be? Because this Anglo-African, rather dense person whose mother says has a strong streak of stupidity, um, had been riding a motorcycle for three months when he got to the edge of the Sahara Desert and headed straight into Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia and then down. There um, you go. No comment, Sam. <laughs> no, exactly. The, but the important you know, lesson it, there, though, is that you can do it. I mean, when can, when we started off in 87, we arrived at the Mexican border with absolutely zero information on how to cross the border. But they know everything there is to know. So all we did was walk up and somebody said papers and we pulled out papers and he wanted more papers and we gave him more papers and then he pointed over there and those guys stamped some papers and they pointed us in another direction and they stamped some papers and they pointed us somewhere else and we stamped some more papers and then they said, you can go. Okay, they know what they're doing. You don't have to know what you're doing. And that goes at every border we crossed. And Grant, on that first trip that you did though, before that, had you already traveled yourself? Were you a backpacker before that? Um, just in North America. I mean, I've been to Hong Kong, but that was it. Right. So it was a huge thing for you, a huge learning curve. Yeah. To move to go to a Latin American country in 87 for me was brand spanking new. Well, I guess, I mean, this is what helped me really, um, because I'd traveled a fair bit with a backpack and bicycle and stuff like that before. Um, I already knew enough not to be afraid and to, and to know what Grant has just described as being the reality. Um, most people mm. don't want to give you grief. Most people just want to help you through the system or want to get you out of their hair. So yeah, they're they going to help get rid of you. Yeah, exactly. Sure. But, you know, this is one of the reasons why I like tour companies. A well-run tour company is such a good first step for people who are dreaming big time because you can learn so much by going with a good tour company. I meet, I meet people all of the time who've never even left the UK and they go off and they, they'll, they'll travel for um, a month in, in Africa with a tour company and they'll come back and you can see the gleam in their eyes and the, I can do this. It's not going to be easy, yeah. but I can do this for myself. Absolutely. We have people coming to, to me at the meeting all the time that see hear these all these wonderful stories about people's around the world trips into all these exotic places. They say, oh, I could never do that. Well, actually, yeah, you can, but here's a tip. Either go to someplace really easy, like New Zealand or UK or North America, depending on where you're from, and that's a, a good step. And it's, it's easy. There's nothing difficult about it at all, but it's something new. Or if you want to do something, maybe you've already done that kind of thing, but you want to try something more exotic, then tour companies are a great way to get your feet wet in someplace more exotic. And once you've done that, it makes a huge difference. It makes it, you start to realize, oh, you know, this really isn't actually all that difficult. I mean, I even remember when we did our, our first, uh, what do you call it, safari. We went uh, in Tanzania, we went on a safari to find out what do we need to know? I mean, what, how do you find the animals? Where are they? What are we looking for? What are the stupid things you should not do? And we learned a lot because we took a semi-private safari, just one other couple, and we really grilled our guide on all the information. We really soaked it all up. And then from there on, we did our own in places like Atosha, where we rented a four-wheel drive and off we went. We just did our own thing, and it was great. But it's a it's that first step of learning from the experts, and then taking your own step. It's having that dream in the first place, isn't it? Yes. Once you've had the yes. dream, make it into a practical reality. And I think it's yeah, it's absolutely. really important to hear somebody like Grant's story. Um, you know, that has done so much traveling now that started out 
sort of fresh at it because I, I think, like I was going to say, a lot of times when we interview people um, that have done round the world trips, they say, oh, I started traveling as a young child. You know, I went with my parents and I went around the world. And I think a lot of people listening are thinking, well, I didn't do that. You know, I didn't travel as a kid. I haven't been a backpacker. I haven't went around somewhere. So how is it possible for me, who doesn't know anything, you know, so to speak, uh, get on my motorcycle and ride around the world? And I think that's a really important point. Yeah, something I tell people a lot of times, too, is always remember that no matter where you are, you're on a motorcycle, therefore you're on some semblance of a road. And at each end of that road, there's a town. And guess what? There's people in each of those towns just like you, and they want the same things you want. They want to wake up in the morning and get something to eat. They want to have some lunch. They want to have a job. They want to raise their kids. They want to send their school kids to school so they can have a better uh, life ahead of them. There's no difference. It's all the same everywhere you go. Sure, different and, colors, different smells, different tastes, but it's it's really the same thing. And don't, don't we all get a buzz out of helping people achieve their dreams? The number of people that, that um, we've got a young couple that are coming to the next HU meeting that we're running. Um, Tyson is a, um, just retired out of the army and got injured over in Afghanistan. And he and his girl are taking off on their trip. They're, they're ready to go. They've got their bikes going. And their first port of girl is going to be HU. Tyson came to our last um, HU meeting and grilled us all for advice. And, you know, he's a young man and his girl, and they're taking off on a couple of years around the world. And to me, that's a great buzz to be able to help Perfect. them live their dream. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the, the most exciting and wonderful things about the meetings that we find is that we get all these people, they come and they're kind of eh, curious and questioning and is this really possible? And they leave and say, we know where we're going now. We've got it all figured out. We're going. And and that's an amazing thing, changing people's lives. Yeah, that's lives right. That and I've had people that we've helped uh, on the road and, the, and you get an email, um, uh, what about this? What about that? And they're, while they're on the road, well, that's fine. That's great. But now... As time goes on, you hardly hear from them because they're too busy having a good time, which is just <laughs> fantastic. And we mentioned about um, going on a, a guided tour, for instance, for experience, but we, we neglected to say the other thing you could do too is go to the travelers' meets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the amount right. of experience there is amazing. <laughs> the other These thing I was all... going to say about those um, the, the tour, tours that people run, most of those tours are started by people who did exactly what we do, and they know, uh, and they're, they're catering to the people who have those those doubts, and that's fine. That's great, and they provide a great service. And they're, they're passionate I can't think about of any com- they're passionate. I, say, about I can't it, think yeah. of any any tour company going that didn't start because somebody went on a big trip and then thought, "I'd like to get more people out doing this kind of stuff." And yeah. then they started leading tours, and away they go. They're they're all very passionate about it, and I think it's wonderful. Grant, why did you, you and Susan to- go? Why did we and go? Yeah. <clears throat> Why did you and Susan go um, on, the, on your start? original trip? Uh, well, that's sort of hard and sort of easy. I'd been doing just about everything I could think of in motorcycling, racing and traveling, and I've been all over North America. And it was kind of got to a point where, well, what's next? And I just wanted to see more and go farther. And Susan want, always wanted to travel as well. So we just said, yep, we're going. We're going to go around the world. Off we went. I think it's, it's making that st- that first step, that first decision, and and announcing to your friends that that's what you're going to do. I mean, I tell people that all the time. Tell your friends you're going, and then you've got to go. Like Sam was saying, you feel like an idiot if you don't go. 
Sounds yeah. to me, Grant, like you were the vagabond and she was the sensible one. Um, well, yes, there's definitely a lot of that. Susan was a sensible one, but um, as soon as I said, I want to go around the world, she, she's right on board. So I don't know how, how sensible she really is. <laughs> but she's certainly the finances person. I'm really good at saying, well, what are credit cards for? And she's saying, well, yeah, but you got to pay for them eventually. Oh, really? No, eventually. Don't let that get in the way. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how we did uh, Antarctica. Uh, we were already feeling broke in, in Africa, but we thought, well, you know, South America is on the way, so we'll go via South America to return home to Canada. But did we go north? No, we went south. We got to Ushuaia and discovered that uh, you can actually take a boat to Antarctica, and it's really cheap. There were some super deals. Well, what are credit cards for, I said. So we went to Antarctica. <laughs> that was and five grand, but fantastic. Yeah. The yep, thing is, if you don't, exactly, and if you don't do those things when you can, chances that you're going to be, be back, back in Ushuaia anytime soon with the opportunity to do that trip to Antarctica. Yep, yep. zero. You've got to do it while you while you can, and if it means yep. taking out a bit of a hit on the credit card, you will pay it off eventually. It is only money. That's right, but experiences are worth the world. I mean, you, exactly. you've got to have those experiences. I mean, what is life for if you don't have experiences? I mean, I can't imagine going to work every day for 40 or 45 years doing exactly the same thing every day and having no experience. I mean, you can watch the football game or you can do this, you can do that, but getting out and seeing the world and seeing other people and understanding a little bit about other cultures and why they think the way they do and why the world is the way it is by actually going to those places and talking to people. The experience and the understanding and the empathy you get for all these people around the world is, is huge and, and you cannot possibly even come close to it by just staying in your own little tiny corner of the world and listening to the news because the news is full of, well, I can't use words like that on the radio. Grant, you know, going going back to what you were saying about um, HU meets and so on, and um, I'm going to talk about Overland Expo here and Overland Event and various other things that are going on for people. Um, there are two things that strike me about these, and one is the number of complaints that I see online about it's not worth it, £65 um, oh, for Lord. three days. And then you actually list all of the things that are available um, for people to get involved in and to learn from over the course of a three-day event, if it's a three-day event. Um, and the sheer pleasure of being around other people who think like you do, who are hungry like you are, whose eyes are wide open like you, yours are, and who are people that you don't need to explain yourself to. And I think that for many people who have got the dream and really want to go, but are daunted by the fact that they think perhaps that they're weird or they're not capable because they're not experienced, by going to an overlanding HU um, meet, they can realize that actually they aren't such oddballs. They're just people who have got their eyes open to the possibilities of making dreams come alive. And you yeah, make friends absolutely. at HU that stay friends for life. Yeah, we met yeah. three Kiwis at our first HU back in 2003, and we're still really good friends with them yeah, all yeah. these years down the track. And um, so it's not only the presentations that are good, uh, good value at HU. 
it's the people who get there. As you say, Sam, they're like-minded people and um, you have a good time. It's very cool. I think I I call it my tribe, don't I, Shirley? I say this is our tribe. They're like-minded people that think the same way and everyone's got a smile on their face and everyone's happy and uh, it's it's what we do. And uh, it just um, it feeds off itself. You see, someone's been there where I haven't been yet. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. So you start planning and away you go. I think yeah, of it as a being a couple of years f- later. Sorry, I was going to say a couple of years later, you come back and you tell your story too. And mm-hmm. yeah, it yeah. goes around in circles. Yep. I think of Overlanders as being um, a family without borders. Yeah. 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 And back to what you're saying about about events, going to events, 65 pounds in the big scheme of things. Um, if you go and you learn something there that saves you a headache when you go to travel, you, you drop that 65 pounds in an instant, I'm sure, in that in that uh, stressful situation to get out of it. So to, to get that sort of information in advance, I don't know. I, I think you've got to weigh it up and think, what will I get out of, you know, a, a certain show that you go to, whatever it is, um, one of the hub meets. You know, there's so much information there. And probably the other thing, too, is you want to get in your mind, too, what do I want to get from it before I go and plan accordingly? Sure. I mean, yeah. I know the, one of the biggest things we see people sitting there trying to figure out their schedule so they can get to all the meetings and all the, or all the different <laughs> seminars. The hardest part of the whole thing is what's your schedule look like and how are you going to fit it all in because there's so much going on all the time at these yeah. events. Uh, but I think that's, that's a, show, a display of how much value there is. If you're yeah. struggling to fit it all in, there must be an awful lot there. So yeah. that's, that's great. And I always remember Jackie Furno in the UK, her comment about uh, the Hub UK meeting. She said, it's like coming home. Yep. Mm. That's a real buzzy feeling when you think most of your friends have no clue what you're doing, could care less and think you're nuts anyway. Yeah, that's true. And then all of a sudden you come home to a bunch of like-minded people that are saying, yeah. Yeah, when I got back from from my eight-year trip, I felt like um, a round peg trying to fit back into the square hole of of real life. Um, And I didn't fit at all. Um, but uh, I'm glad that you bought, um, except for uh, Horizons, um, but I'm glad that you bought Jackie Furno up because um, that gives me the perfect opportunity to mention that she's just launched her first book and it's yeah, called Hit the Road, Jack. And um, yeah, I've got a copy and I can't wait to get into it. I've read the first few pages and um, had to put it down because this is going to be a book that I want to put my nose into properly. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say the same yeah, thing. I can't we wait to get the mine. email. As well. Yep, and, that's uh, great. Nice to see because we, we interviewed her some time ago and the sort of the book was a dream that she was, you know, she was, I think she said she was planning on doing it. But now to see that done, another one of those dreams that come true and you got to wonder what's behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the big thing about dreams is first you have to dream them. You have to want them and you have to then decide, is this a dream that's realistic? Can I achieve it? Can I do it? And do I really want to do it as opposed to gee, that'd be nice if it just drops in my lap. And, and a lot of dreams like that. I mean, I'd like to go to the moon. Sure. Yeah, lovely. Wonderful. Great dream. But really? But things like going on a big trip, going to another country, doing something a little bit more than the usual, those are achievable dreams. You just have to make that decision that that's what I want to do. And then once you've made that decision, told all your friends, then you focus. You stop buying the, the $5 latte. You stop buying the bottle of wine for dinner. You, you stop buying the new phone. The old one's fine. It works. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you focus on what matters and ignore the stuff that doesn't. And once you yep. start doing that, 
it becomes, this is what I'm doing. This is part of my dream. This is how I achieve my dream, by focusing, saying, this is what I'm doing. And everything becomes focused and goal-oriented. You, The goal is the date. And in the meantime, all you do is, what do I have to do to get ready? You get your bike ready, you get yourself ready, you get your mind turned in the right direction and focused on what you want to do, and then you just do it. And it's not that hard. It's far easier than people realize. I don't think any overlander has ever said, it was harder than I thought. It's actually easier. That just brings to mind a thought, because you, you just said there about the date is the most important thing. And, and I just want to throw that out there for, for people who are maybe um, unsure of how to figure out what to do, because it's a huge thing, you know, planning to do a trip somewhere. But with anything that you're planning, if you have, you say, okay, this is what I want, and you sort of work backwards from there. You know, you sort of reverse the triangle, and, and you work your way backwards and say, okay, what will it take to get to that point. And, and you can use that as sort of a, a planning thing, trying to figure out what exactly, what are all the things I have to do to get to the, the end result? Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I bung straight into that is, um, what's the weather doing? Because yep. you're never going to be 100% ready, but what you do want to be is heading for the area that you're going to first when you know that the weather's gonna be right. You can travel around the world in the monsoon if you want to, but why would you want to? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you plan it the other way and you can travel in perpetual sunshine yep. and summer for 12 yep. months, that's the way to do it. Sam, you yeah. just mentioned when you came back, you felt like the, the square peg in the round hole. And that sort of takes us to the next thing about becoming uh, like after, uh, do you think after a time you become an adventure addict? Because, you know, once you've done it, you know, the possibilities, you know what you can do and you know that sort of everything's a possibility. Because that's, that's one thing that is very common with, with people we interview for Adventure Rider Radio is that um, they say that often it changes them in, in ways they never could have expected. And the one thing that I hear a lot of is they realize they can do anything. That, that anything's possible. You just have to have the, well, the desire, the dream. We're going back to that again. But do you think that you sort of become an addict after a while? And, and if you do, I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, you are still a square peg, aren't you, Sam? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. I tell you what, I think I think you can become an adventure addict, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. My mother asked me for years if I didn't think it was time to grow up. And I tell you what, she stopped asking me now. <laughs> um, I, you know, for, for me, travel is a bit like really good quality chocolate. It looks great, it tastes great, and there's something exotic about it. Exotic about it, and it makes me feel good. Doesn't chocolate make you fat though? Oh, yeah. Travel can do that as well. You can good chocolate, good chocolate, Jim. Good chocolate. Exactly. We're, we're talking low sugar, high Dark high chocolate. cocoa content. Come on, and Jim. Jim good stuff. Hasn't exactly. anyone told you, Jim, that calories eaten outside the home do not count? Oh, I, know <laughs> I, did. I didn't know yeah. that. I'm going to have to make a note of that. Yeah, well, I'm, good, I'm having dessert tonight. tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Just eat it out in the garden. Right. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a chocolate addict. I mean, an adventure addict. <laughs> or either. Yeah. I, I just think, I think so long as you're not hurting other too. people, so long as you're not causing damage to the environment and to other people, then why not? I think yeah. the more people that travel, um, the more the world has a chance to survive. I know that sounds awfully pompous, but I'm a firm believer that the more of us that become adventure addicts, the more of us that get out there and see what the world is really like, um, the more perspective there is and the less bullshit there is. 
I, I yep. said, yep. I said, you're still a square peg and you said, no, you're, you're definitely not. But, but <laughs> when, when you have this wanderlust, when you, you know, you're coming back, you're, you're, you're planning another trip, you go off on other trips. How do you explain that to people? Like, how, how do you present yourself? I mean, obviously, Sam, you've got it worked out now because you're, you're still doing it all the time. Is that, is that question aimed at me, Jim, or everybody? Well, it's aimed at everybody, but I'm sort of putting it back to you because I, I think you, you know, you're, you're sort of living it all the time. You're always flying somewhere. I mean, Grant and Susan are as well. Um, but um, how, do you, how do you fit in now? Um, I think that people, um, I think that um, culture in Western countries, in many Western countries, has changed quite dramatically in the last 20 years. When I first started doing big trips, companies would get the crosses, um, cloves of garlic and the steaks out when I applied for a job. And I think that more and more companies nowadays look at people who have traveled um, with much more open minds rather than this disbelief that you would do something as stupid as go traveling. Because they know that we live in, um, it's a truly international world. Companies are interwoven around the world. And if you as an employer can be looking at somebody who's got some real life experience, who's stood on their own um, feet in um, many other cultures and has survived and has learned and has grown from it, the chances are that person is going to be a much better employee than somebody who's straight out of school or college and has got no life experience at all. And I think one of the things that's changed quite dramatically is um, when I was at school even, um, so not so long ago, um, come, people oh, were come expecting... On, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. I really there, got away come with on, that. Sam, like, who are you talking to here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's about that crazy, weird world you live in. That, oh, yeah, go no, on. Yeah. Just, just, on your po- just on your point, Sam, um, businesses now have a name for that. They call it emotional intelligence. And it's actually ticked off in a KPI when you go for right? a job. Oh, wow. Yeah, emotional intelligence. And the more you travel, the more emotional intelligence you have about the world that we live in. I think that's yeah. fantastic had- because you know, the employers no longer look to employ somebody who's going to start at age 18 or, or 16 and stay with the company all the way through. What they want is for somebody who's going to fit the vacancy that they've got and do that job very well, whether it's for two years or three years or four years. And so companies' mindsets have changed dramatically. And if you can show that what you have done and what you have learned while you've been traveling um, is an asset to a company, um, then you've got a much better chance of getting a job. So it's it's topsy-turvy, and that's just brilliant. People have got to be aware of it, and they've got to take advantage of that. If we're uninformed and afraid, we're malleable in our ignorance. Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's true, Sam, but who yeah. wants a job, really? but what what you're the reason you're saying this though is because getting a job is is a big deal like when you're if you're planning on doing a trial you're planning on traveling a lot then part of the hassle is is trying to come back and raise money for the next time that you go and trying to get that job where you know you're not going to stick around longer people may suspect you won't stick around very long no but think that the world has changed as sam was saying we see this all the time when we first started off our number one concern was, would we be able to get a job when we come back? And yeah, of course we did, no problem. And what we also see in the last 30 years changing is we keep hearing now, today, all the time about people who come back from a trip, go looking for a job, and at first they start 
kind of hide that they were away or try to adjust dates so that they it's not visible that they are away for a period of time. But then they realize that employers are actually looking for people who've done something extra, something other than the ordinary mundane mouse just does it, comes in and does their job and walks away. People who've done something like a big trip, whether it's around the world or just another continent or whatever, for any period of time, they've done more, they've learned more, they've seen uh, different things and different ideas. And they're also, by doing that, that means that they're more adventurous, they're more open to ideas, and they're more likely to be able to come up with new ideas about how to do things in the company. So they're a more, much more valuable employee. And we keep hearing reports constantly about people saying, yeah, I came back and I got a new job and I got 10,000 more than I was getting before and I'm really valued. And that's fantastic. And we hear it all the time now, whereas before it was hide what you used to do. But today, no, let them know what you've done. Let them know that you've done something special. That raises you a step above everybody else, the ordinary applicant. It makes you stand out, if nothing else, which is always important when you're looking for a job. I think that it allows you to be um, a, um, a repeat offender because, you know, companies aren't expecting you to, to be there with them from, from the year dot to, the, to, to when you turn your toes up. Um, and they do value exactly as Grant's just been saying. So, you know, you come back from a big trip, you've learned lots, you've grown, you've gained confidence, you've gained perspective, um, you've gained a full awareness of so many of the realities of life, and you've gained that buzz of enthusiastic energy that, that traveling gives you. And those are all assets to companies and they don't expect you to be with them forever. So if you were to work for a company for five years then and then save up like mad while you're doing that um, and go off for another journey, that's fine. That's fine. Well, the reality today too is that nobody stays in a job or virtually yep. nobody stays in a job for years and years and years. The average number of years in a job is down from 30 years, 50 years ago, to two, three, four, five at most. Yep. Companies expect you to move on. And companies used to have a lot of loyalty to their employees because they stayed there for 30 years. But then people realized, well, they don't really have a lot of loyalty to you. So people don't have loyalty to a company anymore. So they expect you're going to move on. And that's fine. So if you've done something great, you come back and you get a job for a few years and move on. Nobody's surprised. Nobody's bothered. It's okay normal. Speaking of 30 years, haven't you been working at Horizons Unlimited now for 30 years? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's got really good <laughs> That's true. 30 years. It is that's, the that's, longest that's I've ever done anything. Is it? That's right. It's 30 years of Horizons Unlimited this year, yeah. Right. And wow. 20 years of the website. Christmas 97 was when the website went live in Ushuaia, Argentina. Wow. That's pretty amazing, eh? 30 years. You never, pla you never thought that was going to happen when you started it. Oh, good heavens, no. <laughs> Absolutely no idea. Do you get long service leave and good superannuation where you are? Uh, no, the boss is a real cheapskate. <laughs> doesn't pay very well at all. I just think about all those air miles you must be racking up on company oh, time. Yeah, lots of air miles, but with seven different airlines. So none of them adds up to much. We did get one free flight last year. I think we did South Africa cheap, but that was about it. Yeah, it's frustrating where you can't do one airline and go everywhere, especially from Vancouver. It's difficult, but there you are. You must show up as, as a frequent traveler, though, for those companies because, oh, yeah. I mean, over 30 years' time, that's a lot of traveling. Yeah, and we go to the U.S. now. Um, most people have a lot of difficulty and there's aggravation going in. 
but they kind of look at us, oh, you guys, okay. Oh, what are <laughs> like talking about when you're, dri- when you're driving across or flying? Either. Oh, wow. We, we get preferred, um, I think, I forget what they call it, pre, pre-pass or something like TSA that, TSA, pre. TSA pre, which means, yeah, we know you, then you're in, zap, no problem, it's easy. So, yeah, too much travel entirely, of the wrong kind of travel, that's the problem with us. We just love it when we can actually get on the bike and ride like we are now. This is a very rare treat for us to be on the bike and travel. Oh, are you on the bike? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, you guys yeah, rode, rode down. down. Well, I rode down. Susan had some work to do before she could leave, so she flew down and met me in L.A., and we're on the bike and meandering our way home wow. via California meeting. Very nice. Yeah. Hey, Grant, what temperatures have you got in Bakersfield? Because it's notoriously toasty there. Uh, 37. Uh-huh, that's warm enough. Which is 95, 96, something like that. Yeah. For those in the Fahrenheit world. Yeah, it, it's well, very okay. tasty. We're off, uh, we're off tomorrow on a, on a ride, and um, then I'll go to Tasmania, where, uh, where we're heading to Canberra um, in a couple of days. It's minus two. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Yeah, I assume you're not going on the bike. Yes, we are. Yeah. Of course we oh, are. Good idea. It's good Brian. Idea. Are you kidding? There's snow he's going. It doesn't matter. <laughs> just, yeah. just trying to catch I'm on the back. Here. I'm on the back. I'm not, you know. You'll be able to hear me whining and carrying on about how cold it is from where you are. Right. You know what happens <laughs> at zero, Shirley? It, at zero, yeah. Shirley finds someone with a car. <laughs> I, was, I was referring more to water and zero. It freezes, you know. The, yeah. It's a bit of a hazard when you're riding. I know, yes. I know. This is a, a ride. There's going to be, I don't know, 300 and something bikes leaving from Melbourne. And we meet up in Canberra where there'll be 2,000 bikes all heading to the memorial. And while it will be minus two in the morning in Canberra, by the time we're at the memorial, it will have probably been to its maximum of 10 or 11 and be rocketing back down into single uh, Yeah, but then the next day we ride <laughs> off with the Texans uh, heading south to the colder weather, sure. I know, that's where I'll be sitting at home with the heating. It's okay. It's right, a just trip. make sure yeah, you've got an electric vest there. I was going to say heated gear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah heated riding gear for sure. Yeah, it's great. Um, but yep, uh, it. talking about addictions and stuff, I'll like <laughs> I, I think I've said this before. For me, for our last trip through Russia, I'd always wanted to do Russia. I went to lunch and came home and told Shirley we're going to Russia. That's that's how you do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well too. You know, you were talking about um, adjusting back to the real world, and uh, everything was around work and getting a job. The one thing that I found when we came back from our first trip, and I've now managed to curtail this is when you're mixing with your old buddies and they're talking about, oh, when we were riding down to Apollo Bay and they tell a story, not to then say when we were in India or when (laughs) we were in the Karakoram Mountains in Pakistan, you just have to pull your head in because it doesn't take long for them to go, oh, shit, not another overseas story. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes it's just best to keep those yarns to yourself and share them at a Horizons meeting where everybody yep. goes, oh, really? That's good. Not, yep. oh, God, not another one of those stories. Yeah, <laughs> different attitude entirely, for sure. Yeah, it is. When you're traveling a lot, you spend time in areas where, um, poverty-stricken areas, places where people do not have the money, do not have the means, and have no chance. We talked about everyone being able to travel. You're traveling in a lot of times in areas where the locals would have no chance ever of traveling anywhere just day-to-day survival is everything how do you deal with that 
a hard one, no matter what you do. There's only so much you can do. And, and I always remember the, the one that really stuck out for us was in Malawi, where people were desperately poor, carrying water on their heads, grass, huts, uh, terrible poverty. And yet we looked at the aid foundations that were there, and the one that really stands out for us was in the long way, the most expensive hotel in town, which we didn't know until we got there and asked the price, was $200 US a night. And parked out front was a row of brand shiny new Land Rovers, four-wheel drives, all with various aid foundation logos on them. And they're mm. staying at this incredibly expensive hotel and literally next door is grass shacks and beautiful churches, absolutely gorgeous, wonderful, full-on Western churches right next door to another grass shack. And that just really, really bothered us a lot. And God, I used I, to I, see I, a lot of that as well. It. Yeah, I, I used to see terrible. a lot of that as well, and it really upset me to see it too. Yeah. Um, I mean, 20 years ago, there were two charities, three charities that really um, – I felt very much at home with. Um, one was Care Australia. Um, their staff were living in um, basic bungalows. Um, it wasn't a vehicle for per, per um, person. Um, it was a shared vehicle between six people and you had to book it. Um, the six people would be living in a bungalow so they'd have their own bedroom each. Um, and that just cut down the costs for them quite dramatically. I was really impressed with them. Uh, another organization was Mission Aviation Fellowship, and they were living very much in the same sort of circumstances. And, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the other one. Um, it, it's um, Oxfam. Yeah, Oxfam at the time were doing um, very, very similar things with their staff. But there were other um, aid agency um, companies, and I used to think, cheapest, how much of the money that is donated to you isn't going um, to um, the people that it's actually aimed at. And, you know, I accept that when you're an aid agency worker and you're out of your own environment and you do deserve to have the opportunity to go back into an oasis which is removed from all the trauma potentially that you're dealing with every day, um, I think that that's only right and you can only do your job dealing with that trauma if you have that oasis of safety and comfort to go back to. Um, because you're working out of your own environment, you're out of your own comfort zone and your skills are helping. But there's a difference between the oasis of reality and the oasis of total luxury. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm. We saw far too much of that. It was really frustrating. So we're very... Um, proud to support motorcycle outreach and do good as you go the muskoka foundation at many of our events and some other local charities and particularly in australia where we do local charities where we can see that the money is going somewhere good right off the top uh, small organizations low overheads dedicated people that are really trying to do something special like do good as you go is about connecting travelers with local initiatives that 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 traveler has specific skills for and can actually do something themselves in person on the job and that's a, a fantastic thing it's very good and you know about um claire elston with um pick a lily in um, oh yeah in malawi yeah. um she was at our uk hub, hub uk event and we were that's exactly right there too yeah that's great good no, good right. work she's doing and for people but who I don't you, know you, about her um she is teaching local people particularly women and um, they are 
collecting funds to make motorcycle ambulances and they're using these motorcycle ambulances way out in the village, but they're teaching the local people to um, service, maintain um, the motorcycles, to ride the motorcycles, to act as ambulance drivers on them, um, to do the administration, all of that sort of stuff. And I really, really like the concept. And Claire is running Piccadilly on an absolute shoestring and um, doing wonderful things already. You see some of the staff that she's getting on board. And to earn money for herself, she's putting herself in danger. Um, she was in the DRC recently, um, mm. teaching and educating, and she's been doing things like that. So she's really stuck her neck out to make this charity happen. So, you know, if people are thinking about it, do good as you go, as Grant said. Um, motorcycle outreach, absolutely phenomenal charity. Um, Pick a lily. There are things out there that you can do. So when you ride past... Um, somebody who is just in dire straits, you're not feeling so guilty about being on your big expensive motorcycle on a long holiday. Uh, I was just going to say that there's only so much that you personally can do, uh, particularly if you're in one of these terribly poverty-stricken areas. I mean, what can you do? Get off your bike and help somebody do dig a ditch or something? I mean, be realistic. There's only so much that you can do. So getting connected with some of these really good charities especially do good as you go, where you can actually do something and stop and get off your bike and help. Uh, that makes a really big difference. But um, just giving your money to some of the big charities, I, I just don't think it's going to get there. En enough of what you're donating gets there and does enough good. What about when you go into an area, though, and I hear people talk about this a lot, they go to a local market and it's very poor and they bargain with people because the, the person at the market is starting with a fairly high price, which is always a very small amount of money, uh, in, you know, in comparison to, to what we go with as far as money. And that people stand there and they and they try and talk them down and t to get the cheapest rate. Now, is that... Is that really doing the right thing? Should we be doing that or should we be well, just paying the inflated price? I'm with you on that, Jim. So many people say it's all part of it and they expect you to barter and all that sort of stuff. But when you think, you know, the clothes on our back are probably worth more than they earn in a year. All right, barter a little bit, but maybe give them the bigger note and don't take the change. No. Mm. You, you, you've, you've done that, Shirley. I remember we would barter a little uh, in India and places like that. Where they expect you. There was one guy, when you said, oh, I'll pay that price, he said, no, we've got to barter. Yeah. He said, no, 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 hang on. We actually had that happen to us. Yes. Um, and you've got to be careful just giving money to people. Uh, yes. We, we were in a restaurant uh, in India somewhere and just come out and there was a, a, a ragged lady there begging and uh, I took her over to the other side of the street where a man was baking bread and I bought her some bread and she didn't want the bread, she wanted money. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to be careful of those things. And we, we yeah, did the same. There are professional we, we hangers had... out there. Well, yeah, there are, yeah, there and are. that's what you've got to we be have careful them here. of. It's, they yeah. do say, um, I'm not sure who they are, but they do say that if, in those sort of circumstances you're better off giving the money to something like you know, Sister Mother Teresa's charity mm -hmm. in India or something like that, rather than individual beggars, you know, while mm -hmm. beggars, the individual beggars may really need the money, but they may also be part of, it, it's like the gypsy women with the babies that you see outside places like mm -hmm. the Vatican and you think, well, you know, this is really sad, but 
are you really deprived or are you part of a gang that as soon as we take our wallet out to give you some money, next thing we're surrounded by children with bits of paper and our wallet disappears into the crowd, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's It does, and it's a really hard one. And it probably makes more sense to give the money to an organization that's going to look into what's happening locally and take the time to figure out where the money is going to be spent best, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm sort of thinking more along the lines of interaction. I mean, when you ride in with your, you know, your expensive motorcycle and your expensive riding suit, which a lot of people do. And, and go into a community and start to bargain with people or start to, to uh, even just have any sort of financial interactions, that's like a, a very rich person. I mean, it's like somebody stepping off of, a, of an incredible yacht here, um, yeah. you know, in our, in our local town here, and telling me that they've got to watch their money, they're so tight for money. I mean, it, it's, you just have a little trouble with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, the, the problem, there's a, it's a difficult question because if you don't bargain, what happens is they start to expect you to, all, all people that are coming in that look like you, they expect yeah. you to pay top dollar and then the prices go up and up and up. And then the economy comes based upon how much can we get out of the tourist rather than actually working locally. And, and there's phenomenon where people actually quit the farms and go to the tourist areas and beg because they can make more money that way. Well, I is that I, good for the local economy? I don't no, know about begging, but the thing is, like, I, I don't know, is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with with their their level of income increasing through tourism? Because if you think about it, what you're trying to do there, and I'm, and I'm being devil's advocate here, um, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to keep things in check. You're trying to keep their system in check sort of remotely by the you know people going through and not overpaying. But yet, you know, for locally where you live at home and you think of tourism there, I mean, the price goes up as the... Uh, as as the demand increases and the supply dwindles, or sometimes even artificially just for tourists. I mean, we find it in the summertime, the prices will often go up in some stores that, that sell groceries. Yet we sort of accept that at okay at home. But uh, that's listen, only a small I, percentage. I, that's that's going to be a 10% increase, not a tripling. There's true. a big I, difference I, in how I, it distorts the economy. I bargain everywhere I go. Sure, um, absolutely. And, and I bargain for quite a few reasons. Firstly, um, I'm always traveling on a relatively lean budget. Um, secondly, um, what Grant said about um, um, hugely inflated prices. Now, uh, one of the stories I tell in one of my presentations is about bargaining for a papaya in an African market. And I have a technique that I use. And um, I think this technique works particularly well for a number of reasons. And to cut a long story short, um, I go and work out what the locals are paying. Um, I know that a tourist is going to be expected to pay at least double, if not three times, what the local person is paying. I don't want to pay tourist price, but I, I accept full well that I'm not going to end up paying the local price. And I don't screw whoever the market holder is down um, to try and get local price. But I'm really happy to accept somewhere in the middle of that because, yeah, I've got more money. Um, I am a foreigner. I am a visitor. I am on holiday. So, of course, it's natural that I should pay more money, but I'm not. there's no way that I'm going to pay full tourist price. But for me, one of the key reasons for bargaining is because it's absolutely a fabulous form of interaction with local people. You can learn so much about culture by bargaining with the people, and you can actually have a hoot. Now, I think that bargaining is a lot of fun. 
you can have a real laugh with the people that you're bargaining with if you treat them with respect and with good humor. What I don't agree with is people who go in and they bargain aggressively, hard-nosed, rude, and sometimes over the most ridiculously small amounts of money. Um, I remember um, standing in a queue at a, at a hotel in Cusco in Peru behind a couple of people who were bargaining in the most rude, aggressive way that I possibly could ever have, have imagined over 25 pence, which was about 40 cents US. <laughs> and just the whole, uh, it was just so wrong. And I don't think people should be bargaining like that. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, you know, get in the swing of it, go with the flow of it, have some fun. Um, bargain with the locals, they do expect it in many of the countries. And you can gain an awful lot of respect yourself as an individual by going about it with um, time and with good humor. I don't expect to be able to go into a market and buy something in 10 minutes like I could do in a supermarket. Um, I'm quite happy to sit on my on my heels and bargain for an hour over that papaya, but my goodness, I'm going to come away with a lovely experience. Yeah. I must admit yeah. I've been guilty of arguing with a tuk-tuk driver over an amount of money which was literally 20 cents and halfway through the argument thinking, oh, what are you doing? You just you've gone crazy. You've been sucked into this vortex of where you're visiting and and not thinking about what you're dealing with. But you saying, Sam, that you bargain everywhere. How does your local butcher take it when you ask him if you buy the steak? Will he throw in three sausages? Oh, with great humour. I bargain. I bargain in the states too. It's it's really great. It's really very funny thing to do. Well, you're not going to do that at Walmart in the states. You've done that too. Of well, course I I've been, if you say to them, I'll pay you cash, not credit card, will you give me a discount off it? Quite often, even in Australia, they'll go, yep, because they're not then having to pay the, um, the fee on the credit card. And technically, they're not allowed to do that either. Part do of their what? agreement, what you just said, part of the agreement that they have with the credit card companies yeah. is that oh, they right. cannot do that. Yeah. At least it is here in North America, no for preference. sure. Yeah, you, you can't give yep. uh, incentives, but but they certainly do in some places. But but hang on, sure. what about paying what what something is worth? Like like for instance, you pay two dollars and fifty. I won't because I won't buy a bottle of water. But a lot of people will pay two dollars and fifty cents for a bottle of water. Um, let's say in North America, yet they go to a foreign country that that uh, has a, a, a low economy, and they won't pay anywhere near that price. They'll say, no, that, that's crazy. It's a, that's a complete ripoff, and they will bargain people down. Is there any, I mean, is there any reason that we should be doing that? Should we not just look at it and say, okay, I'm comfortable paying, you know, 250 or I'm, I would normally pay 250 for that. I'll just pay that. Well, there's, don't forget, there's differences in local wages and costs. Um, buying a house in Vancouver, for instance, you're looking at a million dollars. Buying a house in Malawi, you can probably get it for about 50 bucks. There's a big difference in costs, which translates to cost of labor, cost of wages, cost of transport, trans cost of everything. So therefore, the actual retail price is going to be significantly different. Australia is currently expensive. Canada is expensive. Um, Ecuador is cheap. But that's a, a relative overall thing, which reflects into the cost of things in the market. You buy a tomato in Cusco, and it's going to be a whole lot cheaper there than it is going to be in Vancouver or London. So, of course, it's going to be a different number, but it's the relative number that you have to work on. Is this a reasonable price for here, for this market, for this location? And am I being asked for too much money 
or am I being asked for a reasonable amount of money? And that's where you have to decide how much you have to bargain, how hard you have to bargain. And, and there's a simple trick or simple rule that you can follow. Whenever Birgit and I go into a new country, we have a list of the standards that we're likely to want to eat, like bread and milk and cheese and, you know, whatever. Um, and we'll find somebody local that we trust. And we'll sit down and we'll share a few coffees with them and we'll have a little discussion. And inevitably, that person will say, yeah, this is what the locals will pay for um, for three tomatoes. And this is what they'll pay for a Coca-Cola and uh, whatever. And we just go down through that list until we've got what we know the local prices are. And when we go into the markets or into the shops, we can then tell fairly quickly whether somebody is taking the Michael Um or whether what we're bargaining with um, or being asked to pay is yeah, fairly close to the mark. And like I said earlier, I don't expect to pay local price, but um, I'm blowed if I'm going to pay um, throwing money away price. Yeah, well, also, do I, do I sound a bit determined to... about this? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely with you, Sam. Absolutely. Because I think that if you end up paying the first price that somebody asks you, the first thing they think is, you're an idiot. Literally. They but think they you're like an idiot. You. They're like, what's wrong? <laughs> No, no, they think you're an idiot. They, yeah, they do. I've no, been they, told they I'm have an no, idiot. they have contempt for you. But hang on, they, they don't think that if you're, pay, if you're overpaying for something. Like if some if some rich person comes here and, and wants to pay me, I don't know, some ridiculous price to do something I'd do for a small. I'm, I don't think I'm gonna think the guy's an idiot. I'm gonna go, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Jim, I was in the market in India, and I had uh, had a market stall hold. I was feeling really tired that day, and I just could not be asked to bargain. And I knew roughly what I was supposed to be paying and, and dickered around for that sort of price. And he told me off. He said, Mr, you're not paying correct price. You must be bargaining more. <laughs> really? Exactly. Yeah, that says yeah. it. And we've all heard the phrase, more money than brains. Okay? So I mean, I, I really like Sam. what Sam's saying, though. Establish a baseline. Take the time to figure out what the standard prices are and then at least know and, and understand you're paying or at least... Um, except the fact that you probably should be paying more than the local price. Yeah, yeah, paying a little more, but not stupid amount more. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that I like to try and deal with the fact that I'm a rich man in a developing world, sometimes poverty-stricken country, is by treating individuals as individuals and treating each individual with respect. I mean, sometimes people um, look weird for the way they dress or whatever else, but then maybe that's just because they've been honed by generations of survival and the size of their wallet. And as you said earlier, Jim, we look weird to them. And it is a barrier to be aware of. And I'll never forget being on um, the ferry going from um, Egypt down into Sudan, down Lake Nasser. And a guy came and stood next door to me, and he was quite a stocky guy. His face um, was covered with tribal scars. And I thought he was scowling at me. And I was thinking, oh, geez, this is not going to be good at all. But we got talking a little bit. And it turned out that he was just another traveler trying to work out how to deal with visas, getting in and out of Egypt and border crossings and all that sort of stuff. And I thought I was on a tight budget. He just spent everything through a cock up. And all he wanted to do was to talk and to try and find a way of coming down from this experience. So the way he looked made me want to react in a particular way instead of treat him as an individual and then find out what's what's going on. And I think that the more you treat people um, as individuals, um, people in, in developing world countries, they've got a real pride. And if you treat them with respect, um, then that's the best thing that you can give them or to, or, or I don't know, gives the wrong word. 
Now, there was a young lad in Malawi, and his name was James. And I guess he was around 10 or 11 years old. He was um, up in the mountains, and I knew that there was a cave not so far away that historically, when neighboring tribes raided this particular area, the villagers would all run and hide in this cave, which was behind a waterfall. And I had a compass and a map, and I reckoned that I could possibly find it. But I decided that I was going to recruit somebody to guide me there because that was some way of me feeding some money into the economy without just giving money to the first hand that came out. And I met this young lad, James, and I liked him. And he said, yes, mister, I could take you there. And he was very respectful. The next morning, he didn't turn up. And he was about an hour and a half late. And I got talking to some other kids who were also trying to to recruit um, um, a wage packet. Um, and w- I did a deal with them because James still hadn't turned up. Um, then just as the deal was done with these kids, James turned up and I explained the situation and his face fell. But this little boy, he stood and he thought about it for a moment and then he said, it's my fault that I have lost your business. I was late. You must carry on with these other boys. And that's the sort of experience that you get when you treat the local people mm. with respect. And you work with them. And you don't just give money away. You pay somebody um, to help you to do something that even if you could find, you know, do it for yourself. And that feeds in nicely. Yep, here, here. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting really passionate about this. No, I, think I was just waiting for someone else to come in. I'm just wondering, okay, so is that is that sort of it? Is the wind out of this one? Well, I think we've we pretty much said it. I think yeah. it's pretty yeah. clear that you have to work with the locals. You have to become part of the local economy, but you don't want to distort the local economy either. And you don't want them to think that you guys, anybody that comes to town is an idiot. Uh, if you follow, if you go into parts of Africa where the Dakar has been, some of the Dakar racers are were known for literally racing through town, and they would throw stuff out the windows at the locals, toys, you know, food, money, all kinds of stuff. They just literally throw it out the window as they drove through at high speeds, and those towns are now ruined, destroyed because every person that comes through from a foreign country in a foreign vehicle, they expect to get something from them. So you get overwhelmed with people begging everywhere you stop. And that's that's a real problem, distorting the local economy. We want to help grow those economies. We want to improve them. We want to do what we can. But at the same time, we don't want to ruin the local economy and the local culture either. In places like Ethiopia, the kids throw rocks at everybody because you're not stopping and giving them something. I mean, that's terrible. Just as you're talking about this, a story pops into my mind about Ethiopia. I was wandering mm-hmm. in the back streets of um, the city of Gondor. Now, this used to be the capital of Abyssinia when Ethiopia was called Abyssinia. Um, Addis Ababa is the capital now, but Gondor is still a really important historical city. And my friends Mike and Sally and I were wandering through the back streets with um, a, a young lad, a, a local lad um, called Daniel. Um, he was sort of in his late teens. And um, he was showing us around because he wanted to practice his English and he was very proud of his city. Um, He didn't ask for money. He just wanted to show us around. Anyway, um, Sally was a bit of a... bit of a honeypot um, and she had the kids buzzing around her and all this sort of stuff but before long the kids hands were um, out give me pen give me sweet give me pen give me sweet Um, and it was actually getting um, quite nasty 
And Daniel said, under no circumstances must you give these children anything. We do not want the future children of Ethiopia to be beggars. We want them to stand up and to be proud of themselves. Yes, absolutely. I can completely agree with that. And that's kind of where I was going. But that's a really well said thing. We want to help the local economy grow. And and he's thinking like this. He's got it together. That's wonderful. Fantastic. um, But the important thing is that there are people thinking that way. I think that's what really matters. And the the people that think don't want their kids to be beggars. Wonderful. But we need to keep that in mind. We don't want to create beggars by our behavior. When we were in uh, Cambodia, there were kids selling postcards and they would come up and they'd start in English and if you didn't respond, they'd go to French. If you didn't respond, they'd go to German. They'd go to Italian. They'd go to Spanish. And I thought, these kids, if they spent a little more time in school and less time flogging postcards, I mean, what they're smart, their ability to pick up languages at such a young age and to be able to communicate with all these tourists and it was a shame that because of their economy, I guess, and and the needs of their families, that they were out hawking rather than at school using those very sharp brains. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's on move on to plugs. And why? Uh, what were you going to say? I'd like to do a Cheerio. Oh, right. I forgot about that. You have some Cheerios. I just have one Cheerio to Bowden Stepchuk from Minneapolis, who wrote to us through our webpage and uh, very kindly bought a full set of our books. He said he felt um, that he should have our seeing. He had all of Sam's books and all of Graham's. But he's a huge fan of Adventure Rider Radio and a huge fan of Raw. And I'd just like to say that his favourite story of mine is my famous ATM story, <laughs> which he's, he believes I've told on more than one occasion and was looking forward to actually reading it in our first book, Two for the Road. So, <laughs> Bowden, I hope you haven't been disappointed missing Graham again this week and we've, uh, we've kept you uh, happy and entertained and informed. Shirley, um, I'd also like to say hello to Bowden because he's um, pinged um, an email um, back and forth with me a few times as well. And um, Bowden, um, I just want to tell you, mate, um, the stickers have been printed. They've been delivered to the ADV Moto office in Chantilly. And when I'm there at the beginning of next week, yours will be winging its way in the post to you. Oh, Sam, go to Minneapolis and deliver it. It's <laughs> <laughs> not that far. <laughs> Bowden's probably our biggest fan, so I think it's up to you. You should, uh, you should <laughs> slip into Minneapolis and, and see it. <laughs> Buy him a beer for us because we did, uh, in our correspondence, we hoped that one day we would meet on the road and we could share a beer together and, and enjoy some stories. So. Well, and this, you, is, this, this is probably a good point to, to throw out this, um, that um, we want to start taking, uh, we, we did one time, we put it out there, we'd, we'd take uh, questions from listeners, but I think we should start doing that on a regular basis. So if you're listening to the show and you have a question for any of us or for all of us or just a, a, a question in general, please fire it off to us. Drop by, uh, you can do it on the website, um, www.adventureriderradio.com, or you can go to the Facebook page, just search for Adventure Rider Radio or Adventure Rider Radio Raw, any any way you want to get it to us. But send your question in, um, no matter what it is, and um, we can try and address it on the show, and I think that'll add some fun to it. We'll have like a, a little mailbag that we'll start to do. 
I think that's yeah, a fantastic yeah. idea. Yeah. And last uh, month, just before we get into plugs, last month we did a giveaway with uh, with Sam's audiobooks. Sam, how'd they go? Um, it went really well indeed. Within three days, um, all of the, the competition prizes um, had gone. I had a few incorrect answers, but uh, all five um, of the audiobooks were won and uh, the downloads went out. So I had some really nice conversations with the people who um, got in touch too, so that was very cool. No, oh, very nice. Um, Adventure Rider Radio Raw has some great people listening to it. I'm, I'm just constantly impressed. Just some? I think they're all great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Grant. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to plugs. Um, I think I'm going to start with um, Graham. Okay, so then we're moving on to Grant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a laugh a minute. <laughs> what do you have for us, Grant? Oh, we've got lots of events coming next weekend, California, September 21 to 24, and we'll be there for the first time in a few years. We've got Queensland in Australia, September 21 to 24, and France. France is, looks like a sellout this year. They're absolutely chock full, September 22 to 24. And of course, that's all on the on the uh, events page, ridersunlimited.com slash events. And the Hum Spain is coming up very shortly after that, October two to five. That's looking like some, a really good event. There's lots of uh, new points in the whole new area. Lots of good riding. That's it's an area that's kind of been avoided and or ignored, I should say. It's not a well-known area, but the riding there is fantastic. It's as good or better than the Pyrenees. We had one guy who said, "Yeah, it's better than the Pyrenees. I like it." So that was uh, that's something to check out if you're in that area of the Hum. And still to come, we've got Western Australia, of course. And that's October 27, Germany, October 28, South Africa, November 9. And last but not least, for sure, Brian and Shirley are hosting the Snowy Mountain event, November 16 to 19. That's our and, last um, event of the year. And while you're speaking about that, we'll slip our plug in. This is known as a segue, Jim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got, coming to Snowy, to the HU in Snowy's, with, there's the usual um, amazing list of presenters, but there's two, one, uh, two presenters that are pretty special to us. Um, Tyson Clark, who we met um, at the Sydney Motorcycle Expo, Expo a few years ago before he went off to Afghanistan and was very badly injured, and he's back and he's, he's um, planning his trip overseas with his girlfriend. He's going to be doing a presentation on how you plan an overseas trip as being the one who's actually doing it at the moment. He's also going to be talking to us about dealing with the black dog of um, PTSD. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder after what happened to him in Afghanistan and how that has driven him to um, to do his motorcycle trip. And his girlfriend, Sarah, his partner in life and in travels, is a yoga teacher, and she is going to teach us yoga moves to stretch before and after riding. I reckon that is going to be awesome. I'll be there. Yep. Absolutely. We had yeah. several people do yoga classes at a number of our events and they always people come back from and they say wow i had no idea and i feel so much better and i'm going to do that class again next year wow it's fantastic so yeah excellent. We, excellent we had a lass at um the hub didn't we um grant doing um yeah. tory and um people would come back to that and said you know i had no idea 
what a great idea. And why have I never thought about that? I can see now why I'm battling. And if I do that, oh, it's going to make my day so much more comfortable. Um, yep. pe- people um, go along to those yoga classes. Don't be afraid. And you don't have to wear spandex. Just go and do it. <laughs> please, some of you don't. <laughs> Greg, I've seen you in spandex, Greg. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. Put that thought out of your mind. That could be damaging. Well, that was a nice segue, Shirley, but you failed to give the website, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. As far as far as the all all the Horizons Unlimited stuff, www.horizonsunlimited.com and forward slash events will put you into the events. Have I got that right? You got it right on. All Thank right. you. I'm, I'm trained. I'm, I'm well trained now. <laughs> We've also got I, some 2018 dates are already posted uh, for a few events. And now's the time to get registered for 2018 because the... We've got early bird rates, so jump in there quick. It comes up fast, doesn't it? I mean, I can't believe oh, we're, we're, so we just quick. buzzed through 2017. I mean, we're at the end of the summer. Well, no, I guess we're past the end of the summer now, and at least for us. Yeah. I know we, Aussies are, are looking for the summer coming, but, um, but what's the weather going to be like in the Snowy Mountains in November? Oh, look, it should be okay. It should be all right. But, Last year uh, it was in the 30s every day. Yeah, um, but we've had a very late winter and there's lots of snow up on the mountains at the moment, which is okay as long as the roads are all right. And I think it'll be like that in November. And following on from the horizons in Jindabyne, um, the next weekend uh, we'll be at the um, Sydney Motorcycle Expo, which is run by um, Troy Bayless Enterprises. Uh, Troy Bayless great uh, motorcycle racer. And uh, so we'll be there. Um, so anyone that's uh, interested in meeting up with us, uh, come and meet us at the Sydney Motorcycle Expo. Are you book signing? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll do a Good. book signing, Z. Yeah, it'll be. And special discount prices for people who come to the expo. And mention of course. Raw. Oh, and, and mention Raw. <laughs> well, last time we were last time we were there a couple of years ago, um, people uh, had been listening to us on Raw well, uh, as they walked. Yeah, one guy was in the corner and, oh, I was just listening to you in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and as if by magic, there we were standing inside the door. But yeah, surely so, you um, used to that. You were on television before. You, you must have run into that all the time. Uh, I used to back in the late 15th century. <laughs> yeah, I did. That's, that's very true. Sam, what do you have for plugs? Uh, well, I have got a very busy um, month and a half about to kick off. Um, um, back in the um, east side of the United States and the 23rd to the 24th of September um, well actually it's the 21st and 22nd but those are trade days so 23rd and 24th of September I'll be at um, AIM Expo in Columbus, Ohio this is the first time that AIM Expo has been up at um, Columbus and I'm going to be on the ADV Moto um, booth and uh, ADV Moto um, are celebrating their 100th issue um, with wow. this um, latest issue, which is just a fantastic achievement, I think. And there's going to be a special um, uh, issue out. And um, to everybody who comes to the stand, I understand there's going to be um, a free copy. Now, there's also going to be uh, Daniel Rintz, um, 
who is um, the movie maker, and Daniel has just finished um, the next part of his Round the World journey. Daniel is um, in the process of making his next film. So everybody needs to watch out for Daniel's um, money-raising efforts because, of course, when you come back from a, a trip, you're skint. And uh, for him to be able to make the movie, he's going to need some help from everybody. But, um, yeah, more on that later. He just started, um, He just posted a, a trailer now. So it's just, I think, just this has morning. Has he? Yeah. Right, okay, I've missed that. I've not been much online today, so um, fantastic. That's good. Everybody needs to support Daniel. Um, if they haven't seen his first film, get it and have a look at it, and you'll see why I'm saying support the next one. Somewhere okay, else so that's um, it's called. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. Um, so 23rd, 24th of September, I'm at AIM Expo in Columbus. The 29th of September to the 1st of October, I'm at Overland Expo East, um, on the Biltmore Estate uh, near Asheville in North Carolina. And I love this event. Um, it's it's just overlanding fascination, presentation, classes, like-minded souls. It's um, it's a real buzz. And ADV Moto magazine this time are doing the motorcycle section. So there's going to be a skills course and all sorts of things that people um, who are into overlanding and adventure motorcycling can get involved with. I think um, getting along to that, they'll have a real buzz out of it. So that's the September 29th and 1st of October. October 6th, 7th and 8th, I'm going to be book signing at the Barber Vintage Motorcycle Festival. Ooh. And this is um, a, a new edition. I've, I've been itching to get down to the Barber Museum. Never been before, but I've heard so many fantastic stories about it. But, um, this is a complete bonus. And I've been invited to be there by um, David and Emmy Woodburn, the Australian overlanders who um, you guys, I suspect, will all know about. And if um, anybody listening has never heard of David and Emmy Woodburn, then look them out, out online because they are um, some of the awesome but um, quiet in the background overlanders. Their trips have been absolutely phenomenal. And um, they've invited me to be on there in their booth at um, the Barber Vintage Motorcycle Festival. That's booth A13 and 14. So um, come and meet um, David and Emmy too. I think you'll be absolutely fascinated by their stories. Then Saturday the 14th of October, I'm book signing at Motorcycles of Charlotte in South Carolina. Um, that's right the way through the day. I'm sure they'll allow me to go, for, go to the loo every now and then though. Um, October the 17th, I'm going to be presenting at Eurosport in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. These guys have been hugely supportive. And then my last event from this trip will be on October the 16th at uh, Morton's BMW in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And uh, this is the second time that I've been with them, and they were absolutely fantastic hosts. We had a really good crowd last time, and with a bit of luck, we'll have um, a good crowd this time too. I just hope um, raw visitors, uh, listeners, will um, be able to link up um, at some of these. Um, it'll be um, a real pleasure to, to link up with people who listen into the show. Now, do I you hope have you've got th enough energy to do it all, Sam. I'm really just <laughs> listening to the schedule. <laughs> Well, you know, the saddest thing for me this time is, of course, that I'm not able to do it on a motorcycle. Um, the doctors yeah, have said... How is the wrist? It's not doing too badly. I reckon I've got about 60% of movement back. Um, I had my last physio session yesterday, and they're all happy with me driving. So it's going to be higher car this time, um, which is a disappointment. But I'm not that disappointed because I'm still able to do the trip. So um, yeah. silver linings. That's Sam, right. I, Do what you I, can. Just, I just thought I would mention that um, when you go to rent the car, they have um, extra insurance you can get. 
You just might want to have, <laughs> have a look at it. Check it out. I have no idea what you're talking about. They tell me I can't fall off the car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, don't. Don't whoa. tempt fate, Sam. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that one there. Jim, <laughs> Brian, Grant, I am touching wood. As I'm good, boy. good boy. <laughs> yes. yes, I will be Very taking the insurance out. Okay, well, um, that uh, that's it. Does anyone have anything else to add? Did we leave anything out? Does anyone feel like just they had something tell, to say? Just tell Graham to come back soon. Yeah, yeah we missed yeah, Graham, we miss him. come back soon. We need to convince him to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. The power yeah, nap. Yes, you know, that, and that's yeah. that's proven, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, you know, like all your 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 great scientists and whatnot. They they've always done power naps. That's been a common theme that I hear. The alternative is a nana nap. <laughs> what? Nano nap is is that a nana. nana nana nap, as in a grandma nap? What is that? Okay. Well, it's what old people do, Jim. You probably don't know because you're not old yet. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think that wraps that up. And uh, thank you very much, everyone. Our after show party is going to be where? At Graham's place. Let's go and wake him up. <laughs> That's a, that is a great idea. You're on. I've got a bottle of scotch to take with me. And it just... Yay. <laughs> Graham's favourite. Oh. Hey, if you like what you hear, you can drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com. You can download all of our episodes for free for both this show and our normal show, Adventure Rider Radio. Also, if you like what you hear and you want to help out, we have a support button there. I'd encourage you to click on the support button and consider supporting us in some way. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more gets your name mentioned here on the Raw Show, as you heard at the start of this show. It's our way of showing our appreciation. Also, we signed up for Patreon. So Patreon, you can, you can go on there and you can put any amount of money on that you want to donate on a monthly basis and that's really the best for us if you can do it on a monthly basis then we don't have to worry about you know finding advertisers and all that sort of stuff but anyway if you can do it great if not don't worry about it you can still do it for free and we love to have you as a listener whether you give or not thank you very much special thanks to my co-host graham field who wasn't here today lives in bulgaria and he has some great adventure motorcycle books for you to read at www.gramfield.co.uk sam manicom also lives in the uk although he's all over the place all the time he's an author of many great adventure travel books and articles and visit his website at www.sam-manicom.com shirley hardy ricks and brian ricks are from australia and they have also moto travel books for you and articles you can drop by their website Check out what they do and buy their books at www.aussiesoverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for the adventure motorcycling community. Definitely drop by Horizons Unlimited. It's got a ton of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum to connect travelers from around the world. All kinds of things happening there. They also put on the hub meets around the world. So basically anywhere you are in the world, you can go to one of the hub meets and learn all about uh, overland travel, especially adventure motorcycling. Visit them at www.horizonsunlimited.com. And of course, last but not least, special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month.